Hello and welcome to the 3M Inside Angle podcast. This is your host, Dr. Gordon Moore, and with me today is Dr. Beth Wolf. Welcome, Dr. Wolf. Thank you. Happy to be here. Dr. Wolf, you and I have spoken in the past about some of the work that you've done. And one of the things that you've done professionally is to move from direct patient care into sort of a more administrative, non-clinical role. Would you give me just a little thumbnail of your backgrounds and a little bit about that transition? Sure. So uh, my clinical practice started in 1999 as an internist and a hospital-based uh, internal medicine physician. And I did that for about seven years and then got uh, interested in palliative care, that portion of my hospitalist practice that, that focused on goals of care and uh, shared decision-making. My involvement with the hospital system led to being on a lot of committees. And uh, one of those committees was the medical records back in the day when we actually had paper records. Um, and so sitting on that committee, it became very apparent to me that uh, although my documentation was about communication to my colleagues, uh, there were a lot more people looking at the chart and trying to glean information from it. And uh, with that, uh, in the hospital that I was working in, got embedded in that process and really started to learn about translation and about coding. And, you know, as we have moved into value-based uh, care and looking at how our outcomes are impacted by documentation, um, I've, I've really emerged in that role. And I would say, you know, probably two years ago, uh, about 50% of my practice was direct patient care. And there's been such a need to kind of provide this translation and this education to physicians that I've moved uh, primarily into that role in the last year. So, I mean, to me, when I think about documentation and coding and stuff like that, it sounds incredibly dull and all just about the money. I mean, it's, tell me more about that. How is it not, or, or how is it you can stand doing that if it is? Um, so that, that's a great question. It is very tedious at times. Um, you know, for me, I guess the background in palliative care and kind of communication has always been important to me and, and recognizing that when my words are not interpreted the way that I intend them to be interpreted, it can result in, you know, significant patient distress, certainly in the direct patient care world. Uh, but it can also result in a complete uselessness of, of the data. And, you know, I think we're living in a time when we really can actually start to look at this data and make real meaningful clinical decisions and interventions and not just ones that, you know, result in Medicare payment or penalty, but ones that really help us take care of our local population better. You know, I mean, I think we don't know if we need a diabetic education clinic or free insulin or outpatient palliative care. I mean, we don't know what we need unless we actually are able to study our patient population. And, you know, I think that in an ideal world, we would enroll every patient that we see in randomized controlled trials, but that is just not possible. There are too many variables. But now we have an opportunity to capture those variables as directed by physicians using diagnoses into codes that can adequately track not only our concurrent performance, but really plan for the future. So, you know, when people say, oh, you know, it's just about the money, it's just about the billing. I mean, I don't negate that. I mean, I think that we need to keep, you know, the doors of the hospital and the clinic open. Uh, we certainly don't want to pay below average wages. You get below average staff, right? That's not who we want to taking care of our patients. So, you know, I think acknowledging that that's a piece of the puzzle, but really recognizing that, um, you know, we as physicians are in a prime position to really make this data better and serve our population. In a callway conversation, I was talking to a physician about sort of the requirements of coding and stuff like that. And he was really frustrated by it. He was saying, 
If I have a conversation with another physician and I say the patient has congestive heart failure, we all know what we're talking about. Why do I get beat up for that kind of thing? And and so, so what do you say to that doc? So um, I would argue that we don't all know what we're talking about. You know, I think that my visual impression of the words acute respiratory failure, for instance, really demonstrate a picture of a patient who is breathing 30 times a minute, who looks in distress, who has significant hypoxia, and who's, you know, requiring a decent amount of oxygen. You know, they're not on a ventilator, but they're pretty sick. That's my picture. And I can tell you, I've spoken to pulmonologists, and they're at both ends of the spectrum. I have a pulmonologist who won't use that language unless the patient's intubated. And then I have a pulmonologist who says, well, if their SATs are 89% on room air, that's respiratory failure. And so, again, I mean, I think that when we use adjectives, when we use words like severe, we can kind of get that picture, but those words aren't captured in the codified data. And so I guess I would argue that we don't all see the same thing. We weren't all taught from the same dictionary in medical school. And, you know, for better or worse, the code book um, is not a dictionary. You know, it's like a phone book. It's a catalog of, of numbers and words. And the coders aren't allowed to you know, read between the lines. They literally have to code from our black and white language. Why does it matter so much? I mean, it seems like we're splitting hairs with a lot of this stuff. Well, again, I mean, I think that, you know, we have the ability to transfer data across encounters. And, you know, if we're not painting a picture of the patient that can be abstracted in a way that can be analyzed, you know, we're really not going to benefit from the technology that we have because we're not going to go into every chart and read the narrative and to look for those descriptors or to, you know, go into the vital signs or read the nursing notes. You know, we really count on that translation of the physician's diagnoses into code so that we can classify patients correctly and provide them with not only clinical decision support in the hospital system if you're doing concurrent coding, but get them to the right specialist or discipline once they're discharged from the hospital. Oh, it's interesting. It just a light bulb just went off when you were describing this. I was thinking, you know, of course it's in the chart. We've been talking about this patient. We have all this documentation. But then when I think about diving into a medical record, I'm swimming in this ocean of words and, and all this toggling between screens and looking at different parts, and it gets exhausting. And so what I'm hearing you describe is this shorthand that tells me exactly what's going on with this person with a degree of specificity where I'm certain that this is left-sided heart failure that's acute on chronic or something like that, as opposed to just congestive heart failure and I have to dig and look and find the echo and do things like that. So is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's just an infinite amount of data. And certainly if you've, you know, experienced the paper world and the electronic world, you realize that when we wrote things on paper, we were very clear what was important to us. Because I wasn't going to take 30 minutes to write a note. I was going to write down the key points of the impression on the CT scan. And then my assessment and plan was really kind of the, the biggest part of my note. And, you know, what we're seeing now is that we have this data dump um, into the note. And so the note is now four pages long before we ever get to the assessment and plan. And the assessment and plan is really very small and insignificant. And it's, you know, not only is it not robust in and of itself, but when we go up to look at the data that was pulled into the note, because it was just so encompassing, I don't really get a sense of what the clinician was worried about. What, what were they using to make their decisions? So, you know, again, I feel like we have so much data, but we really, we don't get the information that we need. Yeah, as I scroll through notes on patients, especially in academic medical centers, I'm reading through 
cut and paste templated notes that are just seemingly endless from med students and residents and senior residents and fellows. And it's like, oh my gosh, some of the stuff I see in there is looks kind of like garbage that's just forwarded because of this cut and paste and note recreation thing. How do we deal with all that? Well, you know, I think, um, you know, my hospital system, we're sort of in the recovery phase from our electronic health record, which it's been three or four years now, but, you know, we were totally on paper as physicians before that. And, you know, we're starting to look at appropriate use of cloning and, and there is appropriate use. I mean, I think that, you know, we need to count on, you know, our colleagues that are not physicians or, or extenders to be entering information into the chart that we can pull from. But I heard this um, from, and I can't remember where exactly, but they talked about, you know, being an author, not an editor. And, you know, I think I try to remember, like, the most important part of this note is what I bring to it. And certainly, I want to pull in relevant information, but I still, you know, have the power to tell this patient's story. I think note bloat, those types of things are very real. When I go around and talk to physicians, it's kind of common sense. I mean, what would you want to read? So, you know, make your note in that vein. So as you do this work, as you're teaching other physicians how to be more accurate in their documentation, what are the kind of things that they talk to you about, push back on, and and how do you deal with that? Sure. I mean, there's, you know, everybody's kind of, as I go throughout the country, in a sort of a different stage of their evolution and reaction to sort of what we might consider the bureaucracy of medicine. And I think that as we first discussed, I get a lot of, well, this is, you know, just about the hospital and and their billing. And, you know, I would say that universally, we're moving to a point of being more aligned in our care of patients. And, And, you know, I think that certainly, if we have continued hospital payments separate from physician payments, whether it's medical necessity on the front end, or clinical validation, you know, after they're discharged, there will be that disconnect. But I do think that, you know, once physicians sort of buy into the fact that this is important, right, they want their patients to look as sick on paper as they are in person. And so we get sort of an acceptance of that piece of it. What I hear is that, you know, I mean, I'm focused on this one problem. So if I'm a vascular surgeon and I've got an ischemic foot, you know, I need to get them in there. I'm not going to be up with the latest, you know, criteria for sepsis. And, you know, so I I need some help with this. And whether it's an extender or a physician assistant nurse practitioner role or whether it's CDI at the elbow, you know, I think they're acknowledging that it's important, but then saying, you know, listen, this is not my area of expertise. How do I get someone in here to help me with this? And I mean, as you know, I cannot document for them. I'm not a hands-on provider, even though, you know, I can look at the criteria and I can say, well, gosh, you're, you're certainly treating sepsis. And this patient sailed through the hospital stay because you reacted quickly and you did a great job, but you didn't document that they had sepsis and severe sepsis. And so you're not showing how sick all your patients are. So when that one person with sepsis does die, you know, it looks like they're an outlier. And of course, the patients who do poorly, we document very well on. We have, you know, a laundry list of problems and we talk about how sick we are. It's the patients that do well that, you know, had those underlying issues that we don't always capture the picture of. So that's an interesting aspect that you just raised. It's the mismatch of the perceived illness burden of a person against the reality that could maybe flag somebody as an outlier to say this patient should not have died given the weight of what you presented and the presentation of that information is to the coders because what we're still using encoded data as a way of judging performance in the value-based world or or not you know even in fee-for-service medicare i guess the star ratings are going to be based on 
you know, are, are more people dying on your watch in your service than would be expected. And the expected, I would guess, is going to be based on the illness burden. Is that is that true? That's exactly right. I mean, I think that when we talk about documentation and thoroughly representing your patient, we're talking about managing the denominator, okay, the expected. The numerator, I mean, that's a whole nother issue, right? If you have a problem with the numerator, then you have to look at your, you know, protocols and practices and your alerting systems and your actual clinical care, right? But what we're talking about documentation, we're talking about managing the denominator. Like I said, when someone does poorly, there is no paucity of documentation. I mean, you know, there's a lot of explanation about what's happening. It's the patients who are sick that do well, that oftentimes we don't reflect their level of of severity of illness or risk of mortality. And I guess it also comes back to some of the payment where there's more work engaging a patient with a high illness burden than there is one with a low illness burden. And that, you know, if you think about value-based payment, the concept is you're working harder, so you should be, the hospital should be paid commensurate to the amount of work. What's the work burden? And if we're not representing that accurately, that's going to have an impact on payment as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's going to most certainly have an impact on outcomes. I mean, if you don't have the right social workers and discharge planners and nutritional therapists and, you know, those folks, you don't get paid more for having those with most of the prospective payment systems, right? So, I mean, you're tasked with putting the right people in that patient room that's going to give them the best quality of care because, you know, at the end of the day, quality care costs less. You don't have the complications or the negative outcomes that are untoward, not unexpected. So you made the shift because you were starting to work in palliative care and looking at the signals in the documentation. And is this something that you do full time now? It is a large portion of my job. I still am on the active medical staff and on the roster to fill in and to pinch it, which I've done several times this year. But, you know, I think that, you know, for me, if I do something, I want to be really good at it. And I think that when you start to move away from direct patient care, you know, I can't say that I provide care that's not up to standard. I just think it takes me longer. I'm not as efficient because you know what, I have to look up the latest chemotherapy drugs to talk about the burden versus benefit. And, you know, I think that um, for me, it was a very difficult decision. I mean, I think I consider myself an operational person because I'm kind of boots on the ground, uh, even though I'm doing non-clinical care. I, of course, recertified for everything in 2018. So I'm good for 10 years. But you know, if I if I go back into it full time, you know, there's going to be a learning curve for me. And I think for you know, any of us that kind of decide to focus our energies on the bigger picture versus kind of that individual patient care, you have to figure out what's going to give you satisfaction over time. And for me, again, I mean, obviously, I want the doors of my hospital to stay open. I want to be able to be taken care of there when I get sick. But again, for me, I'm, I'm most interested in how we really impact the overall care of the patients in our community. And I think that we have just unlimitless data that we can use to do this. But physicians, you know, again, we need to be in control of it because we actually know what the patient has. That's sort of my passion for it. Uh, but it's, you know, it's not for everyone. And, and I think um, I'm a firm believer that, you know, you always have the right to change your mind. You kind of do what you're drawn to and what you love. And if you don't love it after a period of time, then, you know, you can do something else. How long have you been doing this? 
So, gosh, since 2013 is when I got my certified professional coding certificate, which was the hardest part of this, by the way. Um, They have a very difficult job and it's very tedious. And I think, you know, from that point on, I sort of became more uh, involved in my local hospital system and I work um, about 900 hours a year for our medical records department in many capacities, one of which is documentation. But I've also started to do uh, some more education in hospitals outside of my area, which, you know, I think part of doing that is, you know, seeing how other people do things and, you know, not feeling necessarily alone in your struggles. And then obviously being able to share some of the best practices that you see across the country. I think about the dissatisfaction that I hear about from colleagues in practice. A lot of it is focused on the electronic medical record. And a bunch of that is focused on documentation burden and coding. What is the future? I mean, I get the the argument for we need to accurately represent what's going on with a person. And we need to do it with a degree of specificity that truly represents this individual so that we know compared to the next person. And therefore... We can do all sorts of things around measuring quality, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's great. But it seems to be such a burden when I talk to colleagues. What do we say to them? What do we do for them? Is it just more of the same in the future? Is there any ray of hope? You know, I can't negate, you know, many of those comments. I mean, I think that we've sort of been asked to do things that really are not necessarily within the original scope of our practice. I mean, I think um, a colleague of mine kind of equated the electronic medical record as, you know, the self-checkout in the grocery store. It seems like it should be easy. It seems like, you know, it would be more efficient. But, you know, I'm not a checker. I don't know how to put my groceries in the bag. And I never get through the line without having to ask someone to come and help me. So I feel like physicians sort of feel that way about the electronic record. And and obviously, there are so many important things about it. You know, I really do want to be efficient and accurate in placing orders. And I think handwriting was a huge issue, a safety issue in making sure patients got the right orders. You know, I think we've traded some of the, the technical errors. And we're seeing that, you know, in the electronic record, if you can write a horrible note on paper, you can write a horrible note in an electronic record, you can just actually read it. I have to believe, I mean, again, you know, kind of coming from a generation that did not have self phones that we've come so far. And I, I just I have to believe that we're going to be better with the electronic health record, both, you know, longitudinally with artificial intelligence, with translation, but it, it's a team effort. I mean, we need to start having codes that pick up our language, like, okay, you know, heart failure, you mentioned stage one, two, three, and four heart failure. If you tell a physician that they know what you're talking about, those have functional definitions, but we can't capture those in the codified data. So, you know, I think it, it's a constant effort to make sure that the language that I use um, is the language that can be picked up. I mean, not the other way around, right? So I sometimes have to go tell physicians, well, you know, if you want to get credit for how sick the patient is, then this is the language that you need to use. Well, you know, that's frustrating, right? Because maybe it wasn't what I was taught in medical school, or maybe it's just behind the times and the code book hasn't caught up with that. So I think it's going to be possible. I think that technology has to help us do that better. And then again, looking at, you know, we have scribes, we have physician assistants and nurse practitioners that have helped with that. We have, you know, more robust consultative services so that the surgeon isn't the one having to document sepsis. I think that it will be a combination of solutions, but it's, you know, it's not going away. And I think one of the things that will probably change our 
note writing the most in terms of the content and readability is going to be access to information. When patients are on their portal immediately after discharge and they're able to see my notes and the consultant's notes, we're going to get better at writing them in a way that, you know, communicates and that's understandable. I, I still have hopes in technology. I, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated by the gap between the promise of technology and what it currently delivers. But I, you know, I see advancements in the ability of machines to capture language in a way that is less error-ridden than when dictation software and it originally came out and had to be laboriously trained. Now, you know, my smartphone can pick up stuff and correct pretty darn quickly. So I have I have hope for how that can work in healthcare and, and ease some of this burden. Um, and I also have hope for the ability to clearly capture a lot of information. You know, early in our conversation, you were mentioning the ability to study what's happening to people. I think that's one of the promises of codifying data around people, what we say turns into codes, turns into the ability to aggregate information across many people and do those kind of studies. And so that holds a lot of promise. So I think I think that will be good stuff as well. So what's what's your future? Do you see your role evolving over time? You know, I do. I mean, I think that I see it evolving into really working with software and all these data points that get entered by non-physicians, you know, those have value. They can point to uh, particular outcomes and particular risk factors. And so, you know, I, I think that this was very difficult for me to, you know, kind of take a spot in medical school, right? Kind of old old school thinking and say, well, you know, I'm not going to use that to take care of patients, right? I took someone else's spot. And I think, you know, it took me a long time to realize that if we're going to make this environment better, you have to have physicians who are willing to play a part in, in the development. And it's not for everyone. It can be tedious. But, you know, I, I think that we play an important role in kind of straddling that world and, you know, maintaining contact in my own hospital hospital system where I meet with physicians that I've practiced with who, you know, are certainly not shy about telling me what they think, um, you know, is, is helpful because, you know, you lose a little bit of that as you as you move away from direct patient care. And again, you can't be great at everything, but I think... Um, you know, asking open-ended questions, being a good listener. Those are all things that those of us who have moved into non-clinical roles and, and we're still trying to represent the clinical roles, we need to be be very attuned to. And, you know, I think you never have fresh eyes again. Like, you know, you never learn the electronic medical record for the first time again. And so when you move away from that in time, you, you sort of forget what that was like and you forget, you know, how you felt and how you saw things. And part of being sort of administrative and operational uh, is, you know, being able to effectively communicate what the patient-facing clinicians are feeling uh, into the world of, of technology or regulatory decision-making. So, uh, you know, I hope that I can continue to do that. I hope that I can continue to, to be a good listener because as I move out of the clinical world. Um, I'm not going to have as direct a perspective. But, uh, you know, I do think there's a role for it. And um, hopefully I can make things better, not just for one patient, but for a population of patients. Tell me, you mentioned team before, and it's something that struck me as well, is looking at the cadres of individuals, CDI nurses and coders, and how is it that we need that team? And how do you, what, what are your recommendations on how teams like that function? 
So my, my first experience of being on a team was on the palliative care team, right? So, um, you know, kind of in medical school, it's a pyramid, right? The physician's at the top. And so when something goes wrong, the buck stops here. And, and you many times, you know, kind of felt alone in that. And, and I think when I joined the palliative care uh, service at my hospital after I got certified, it was fascinating to me because when we sat down to, to meet with a family and a patient, um, I had a social worker with me. I had a chaplain with me. I had the nurse practitioner with me, sometimes the nutritionist therapist, sometimes the pharmacist. And, you know, I was not necessarily the most important person in the room besides the patient. (laughs) Um, You know, the patient was maybe far more interested in the spiritual professional. And so that that was one piece of it to kind of realize, you know what, I don't have to own everything that's happening to this patient, right? I can I can utilize the highly skilled people around me. The second thing about being on a team was after we left the room, we literally kind of did a 360 debrief. And I sort of envisioned the circle, right? People gave me feedback, just like they gave everybody else feedback. And at first, it was a little uncomfortable, right? Because, you know, I wasn't quite sure how to take it. Um, But, you know, at the end, it actually made you so much better. And so that aspect of being on a team, I think has been incredibly transformational for me. And, you know, I think there's a reason that professional teams have coaches, right? I mean, I think that you need that feedback. And I think being on a team lends itself to making making everybody better. And so, you know, I sort of took that aspect of my professional patient care practice and, and really have tried to apply that in other aspects of what I do now. And do you, inferring from our conversation, that you would say that that kind of team is important in how we document and how we code stuff and how that information flows? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. To kind of reference back to the meeting I had just this morning where the vascular surgeon said, you know, I can't I can't do this alone. Like, I need help. I understand that it's important, but I need help. And, you know, so again, yes, how do we hardwire the people to be in place so that he can do his job efficiently and effectively and we can still capture all these other things? So, you know, 100%. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think about... My background as a family physician, I remember as a resident rotating through pediatric oncology and thinking, thank goodness there are people who feel like they can, they have the calling to do that work because it is way beyond me. You know, and I think as I as I look at the, the coding world, it's like, oh my gosh, the, the degree of detail and the stuff you have to know to do that well. It's like, just thank goodness there are people who are good at that and who want to do that. And then I can collaborate with them and they can do their thing well. And I can focus more on the clinical stuff that would be more interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, absolutely. And, you know, when I go and talk to other physicians, I don't pretend to have a handle on all of this. And that's why, you know, I really do talk up, you know, the other people involved in this process, because they are experts in their field. And we need to treat them like experts, and we need to surround ourselves with them. Yeah, and then hopefully technology then helps in terms of easing the communication and making it seamless. That's the promise. Well, Dr. Wolf, any last comments or thoughts? No, I've, I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www.3mhisinsideangle.com.